welcome to the Transformational Storyteller Podcast. The stories we tell ourselves and others shape the lives we lead. I'm your host, Dara Lise Lyons. Welcome to another episode of the Transformational Storyteller Podcast. I am so excited for my guest today, Ed Eisen, a former journalist who has quite literally had a front row seat to some incredible and amazing experiences. And I'm excited for him to be here today telling us about some of the highlights of of his story and other people's stories. And so welcome, Ed. Can't wait to talk to you. It was March of 1971, and a bomb went off at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. No one was injured, but this kind of a make-believe bomb went off in a restroom at the Capitol, and hundreds of people rushed out of that building. And I was a reporter at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and my editor said, I wonder how safe the federal buildings in Philadelphia are. Why don't you run out to the, at the time, the biggest federal building in Philadelphia, which was at 9th and Market Streets, take a briefcase, stick an alarm clock in there, a ticking alarm clock that would sound like a bomb ready to go off. See if you can use your press pass to get into the building with the security guards there and go on up to the various floors, the various restrooms in this building and see if you can get away with it. Let's see how safe the federal buildings are in Philadelphia. Let's test them. So that's exactly what I did. I was wearing, uh, at that time, a Russian fedora intentionally to look suspicious. And I had the briefcase, the ticking clock, used my Philadelphia Inquirer press pass to get through security. And then floor by floor by floor went up to all There's seven floors, the seventh was locked. So I went up to all six floors of the federal building. Went past judges' chambers, went past courtrooms where trials were going on. Secretaries, whom I didn't know, waved to me, this guy in the Russian fedora. And I stopped by each restroom, waited there with the ticking clock, hoping that some security guard would come in and detect me. So one by one by one, I went through the, each of the floors, absolutely nothing happened, exited through the post office building at 9th and Market Streets, and the next day, this huge page one story appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, simply saying in the headline that 
security at federal building flunks. That's the story. I love that story that Ed just told, and in fact, I love all of the stories that he tells in his book, Front Row Seat, a memoir by Ed Eisen. Um, the book is available on Amazon, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And to hear that story, as well as some of the stories about his interviews with Mother Teresa and uh, him turning down the mafia and some other really juicy um, personal and professional anecdotes, head on over to Amazon and get yourself a copy of Front Row Seat, a memoir. Ed, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Great being here with you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, like, what's it like being the one who's getting interviewed? Because typically it was always the other way around. That's unusual. Uh, you you kind of have to think twice when, when you're on the other side of the, of the camera, so to speak. Yeah. I'm the one who has always asked the questions rather than given the answers. So. There might be a little pause between, between your question and my response. Yeah, well, what I love about, especially the story that you chose to tell about posing as a terrorist, which I think is just kind of scary, but also fascinating and wonderful. Um, what I love is that you really thrust yourself into the fire quite a lot of times in the world of journalism. So uh, can you talk about that, like about that level of willingness to really go where people weren't willing to go? Yeah, because that's what you need to do as a journalist. Uh, you, you have to be persistent. You have to be aggressive. You, if you're not persistent, if you're not aggressive, if you're not willing to uh, knock on the door, not only twice, but 20 times if you have to, that's when people hang up the phone on you, right? So it's all of those kind of things that, uh, that are critical. I can remember uh, during the riots in Philadelphia, uh, in North Philadelphia, and sitting in a phone booth and having 10 guys shaking the phone booth as I was trying to call in a story, um, about what was going on, fires going off, and uh, people being pretty upset. So that can be the life of a newspaper reporter. You don't know what the next day will deliver. What happened in the phone booth? Well, I thought they were going to set it on fire. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I called the story in, and... Uh, they just wanted to scare me. <laughs> uh, they just wanted to, you know, scare my pants off. So I was allowed to leave the phone booth, rush down to my car, and get out of that place. Oh my gosh. When you're telling all of this with a smile on your face, and I, you know, for people who can't 
see the YouTube video, I hope they will check, you know, check that out because I know at some point we're going to be talking about specific stories and showing photos on the YouTube video. But I just like it's so interesting, this juxtaposition of who you are in your personal life, like you're a very, you know, responsible, very, um, I don't know, you know, like a stand up guy, but you it seems like you're just fearless. Uh, I have been a fearless guy since I was a fearless little kid. Um, as a seven-year-old, um, reading Superman comic books and reading about uh, the Daily Planet and uh, Superman's alter ego, and I said, gee, that's the guy I want to be. And uh, I, I knew from that point on, from a seven-year-old kid, that journalism was the path I wanted to take. Yeah. Well, so did you want to be Superman in the, in the cape, or did you want to be Clark Kent? I wanted to be Clark Kent. I love that. I wanted, the guy, I wanted to be the guy with the spectacles, the guy who was a little nervous and unsure of himself. And, uh, and I was a little kid with glasses and a little nervous, but uh, I've outgrown that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love that. Well, what was one of the stories as a journalist? I'm sure you were nervous with the terrorism story that you told, but what's another story that you were really nervous going into as a journalist? Yeah, I'll tell you about that one. One day, uh, I was working the night shift at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I got a phone call from a man who identified himself as Alan Taub. And he told me he, his daughter had been at a place called Penhurst State School and Hospital uh, since she was a three-year-old girl. At the point of the phone call, she was now 19 years old. She was blind and developmentally disabled. And he said, Mr. Eisen, you've got to take a cameraman and you've got to run down to Penhurst State School and Hospital, which was in a place called Spring City, Chester County, just outside of Valley Forge. He said, it's horrendous. The conditions there are just terrible. They don't live like human beings. They don't treat the people living there like human beings. Go out there, see it for yourself. Wow. I thought that might be a pretty interesting story. So indeed, I brought a cameraman and what I saw was exactly what Alan Taub described. There were little babies in their cribs, crying, screaming, who had been unchanged for hours and hours. Ceilings, high ceilings in this hospital that was built in the early 30s with um, fly paper from the ceilings to catch the horse flies. The odor of stench throughout the place. Human beings walking around, you know, in a, in a state of disarray. Doctors who gave patients 
hypodermic needles, not because they needed the, this, the, the, the transfusion, but to si simply keep them quiet. And it just was like that. Uh, the, the head of the place spoke to me openly, and uh, it, it was a terrible, terrible, terrible place. So when I came back to the Enquirer, I wrote the first of a year-long series on the horrid conditions at Pennhurst State School and Hospital. The interesting thing, Alan Taub, the guy who called me, told me I had an exclusive. It wasn't at all an exclusive. He lied that Monday, and we came out on a Sunday, so we, we beat WCAU-TV with John Facenda. Some people will remember that name. So John Facenda came out with the same story called Suffer the Little Children, words taken from the New Testament about the words of Christ, that you should take care of children. And so, after a year-long series in the Philadelphia Inquirer about these inhumane conditions, and we had congressmen coming down there and a big to-do as a result of it, what do you think happened? Oh, well, I read the book, so I know. So you know. So I know. It yeah. took another 19 years, took another 19 years for Governor Broderick, Broderick of Pennsylvania to get the gumption to shut down, finally, Pennhurst State School and Hospital. And today, every Halloween, it's used as a trick and treating center for kids. So that's the story of Penhurst. Well, I think it's amazing your relentlessness as a journalist. And I also, you know, and this idea of being a champion of children and parents calling you. And it reminded me of the story that you wrote about, about the parent who reached out to you because their child was missing, went missing, and how you put on your investigative hat for that. And so I wanted to, you to maybe share a little bit about that. That's, that's a great story. But the interesting thing about that and the hat that I put on was a hat that was not a journalist's hat, but it was a hat of a public relations person, just so that your audience understands the difference between being a journalist, a journalist, as I would think everybody knows, or maybe they don't know, but Journalism 101 teaches you that there should be balance in news. I, I'm not talking about editorial columns, but I'm talking about news, news reporting, that you report both sides of a story. I was, at that point in time, I had left the Philadelphia Inquirer, I had left the Philadelphia Bulletin, I had left journalism, and I was working in not the fourth estate, which is another name for journalism, but in this thing called public relations. What you have to understand, what your audience has to understand about public relations is that it's just the opposite of being balanced. 
paycheck in public relations is written by your client. Your client could be a banker, your client could be a law firm, your client could be an insurance company that's trying to hide some misdeed that, mm -hmm. that they've done. Your client could be, as it turned out in my case, the mafia at a, in another story. So they're writing the paycheck. Your job is not to write a balanced story. In public relations, you need to think of yourself as a criminal defense attorney. Your client is the murderer, the bad guy, and you're trying to write a white paper on the fact that he's a good guy and how your audience should be sympathetic, empathetic to that client. So now let's take it back to your question. And the, the, the issue was this. Uh, there was um, the client was a man by the name of Bipin Shah. Bipin Shah was a multi-multi-millionaire who had accumulated his millions uh, as the architect of the MAC system, an electronic banking system where, as you know, you go to, to a gas station and you buy $20 of gas, you pump the gas, and out comes a little slip of, you know, a oh, receipt. Yeah, that paper. Yes, yeah. that paper yeah. that comes out. Well, years ago, 40 years ago, it was called the Mac machine. It was called a Mac machine. So you'd, you would get cash out of that and a receipt and so forth. He's the guy, Bippin Shaw, who made millions out of that yeah. device, yeah. out of that device, and of course, it's used to this day. So that's the background at Bip, of Bippin Shaw, and he worked at a major, major bank in the Philadelphia area. He was married once. Uh, he cheated on his wife. He got married to a, a very attractive blonde at his bank and they lived together for seven years and they had two children. Um, her name was, is Ellen Dever. And uh, after seven years or before the seven years, the marriage broke up. They got divorced. He, he bought her a half million dollar home uh, some miles away from his mansion and every Wednesday, she was supposed to bring their two children, one six and one nine, to his mansion so the parents would share the children, Sarah and Vivi. Vivi was the younger one, Sarah the older one. One day, Pippin went out. Where are my kids? Where are the the kids weren't delivered. He called her on the phone, no answer. Where are my kids? So he did some checking. He hired some investigators. He, he found early on where the kids were. His wife had disappeared somewhere, vanished into thin air 
in an organization called Children of the Underground, an organization that was run out of a Dunkin' Donuts shop in Atlanta, Georgia, by a woman whose husband abducted years earlier with their child, and he had uh, sexually abused her, this child. And now this was her way of, as she put it, of, re of helping other women, mostly women, some men, whose children had disappeared, and she would help them disguise, put on wigs, put on false eyelashes, makeup, uh, change their identification, their social security, and put them on an airplane somewhere, put them into safe houses, and they would just, just disappear, disappear. Children of the underground. So he found that out. Her name was Faye Yeager. And he called her, he threatened her, and she, of course she wouldn't release where, where his wife and Vivi and Sarah were. And he called the FBI and nothing happened, and he searched and he searched. He put out posters, nothing happened. And he realized the one thing that he was not doing and the one thing he needed was what I could deliver. Publicity. Publicity in newspapers and magazines, not only locally, but all over the world, from here to China. Where are my children hidden? He was referred to me because Bipin Shah would see a guy by the name of John Allens. John Allens would find dates for Bipin, so he would date all these different women. John Allens knew me from, the from my days at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he referred me to Bipin. One day, I get a call from Bipin Shah and he invites me out to his mansion in Rosemont, Pennsylvania. And he tells me the story, and he asks if I'd like to help him find his daughters, his family. And we sign a $10,000 contract, $10,000 a month. And I'll tell you, in all my days in journalism, and 15 years in in journalism plus many more years in broadcasting, I had never gotten $10,000 a month to do any, this was 1998. 1998. Yeah. And I'll tell you, Ed, if someone wanted to pay me $10,000 a month, I would help them find their kids. That's right. Too. Yeah, but. That's right. Wow. He wasn't the sweetest guy in the world. No, he, no, he was, no, I gather. He was gather, a tough, yeah. tough yeah. taskmaster. Yeah. But that's the world of PR. You, you take it as you get it. So I accepted the $10,000. And I put out stories because I can write yes, stories. Yes. That's what I did in my former career. And I got nowhere. He got nowhere. The stories didn't go anywhere. Why didn't the stories 
make the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and a, a paper called the Philadelphia No one wanted to run the story. Why? And I'll tell you why. News is this. News is, I'll tell you what news is not. News is not dog bites boy, plane lands safely in Philadelphia. That is not news. But news is plane crashes at Philadelphia International Airport, dog bites boy. That's news. That's news. Think about it. That's journalism 101. So, and let me the, just ask you, what, so what do you mean by that? Like, what I mean, yeah. I, I, that's where I'm going. Okay. <laughs> Journalists, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Philadelphia Inquirer, they laughed at me. Mm. They wouldn't run the story because they knew, they didn't tell me this, but I subsequently found out that these kidnappings, parental kidnappings, are run at the rate of a thousand a day. It's, in other words, it's plane lands safely in Philadelphia. Dog bites boy. It's common, it's, it's not unique, it's not unusual. News is what's unique, what's different. This was a nothing story. The media said, so what? So what? The mother runs off with her two daughters? What's the big deal? What's the story? Wow. Where's the story? Now, he did have from the courts a edict that specified that she could not leave the state. She could not leave the area. That was a court ruling. So she left this. Well, he didn't know where she she, yeah, he yeah. didn't know where she was. So that's what made it a nothing story. Finally, after being persistent, as I had been, I got one story, very tiny, about yay big, in the USA Today. I mean, it was that big. And he looked at the story, and I looked at it, and he said, Ed, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to cut your retainer. You know, we had a contract. Yeah. We're gonna, I'm going to cut your retainer from 10000 to 5000 Just like that. I had a contract yeah. with this guy, and he broke the contract. What was I going to do? Even 5000 was a great payday yeah, <laughs> for, yeah. for a former an ex-journalist. I had a roof to repair, the roof was leaking, and the kids needed a college education, $5,000 a month was, st but, but still, I, I, I was somewhat annoyed that he, he didn't, he gave me approximately two months, and after two months, USA Today was the only thing I could come up with. So he said, you're getting 5,000 or nothing. So I took the five grand, and I said, what am I going to do now? And that's where, as a journalist, as an ex-journalist, you've got to use everything you've got within you, including this thing called networking. Mm -hmm. Who do you know? Who do you know? 
Who do you know? So I remembered this guy who worked at the Philadelphia Inquirer, my old paper, my alma mater, called, his name was Steve Lopez. And Steve Lopez wrote a column four times a week. They were brilliant columns that he wrote in the Inquirer. And I used to, as a PR person, I'd run past his desk as I was talking to other reporters there. He was a snooty kind of a reporter, very self-important. I'd say hello, and that's about it. He was no longer, when I called him one day, he was no longer working at the Philadelphia Inquirer. He was working at a magazine called, you've heard of it, Time Magazine. And uh, I said, Steve, you may remember me from your days at, at the Inquirer. And now he was working at the prestigious Time magazine as a features writer. And, you know, he vaguely remembered the name. I recited the story. I pitched the story, as we call that in public relations. I sent him the story. And he said, you may have something there. He said, and he understood right away that, you know, this kidnapping stuff by parents is a, is a kind of a non-story, but the story that I wrote got into the emotional part of what Bipin Shah, the architect of the Mac systems, was going through. The phones ringing all of the time, headhunters trying to get a piece of trying to find the girls. So Steve Lopez and I went out to Rosemont, Pennsylvania. We sat in his, in his living room and Steve asked, spent an hour and a half asking questions. And he, he got a story and I, what I did was suggest that we change the bounty to $2 million bounty for headhunters. Anybody with information, $2 million, from $1 million to $2 million. He got hundreds of calls, yeah. hundreds and hundreds of calls. None of which, by the time this was all over, None of these calls found the girls. None of these girls, none of these phone calls resulted in a tip-off yeah. that would find the girls. But as a result of the story that Steve Lopez wrote in Time magazine, it was front cover. It was yeah. Bippin Shaw. Sarah and Vivi on the front cover of Time magazine. This was like the virgin birth. <laughs> yes, what yes. I was able to do yeah. in the world of public relations was for five grand a month, was, was worth a million a month. I, I mean, this was a story that could not be done. Uh, you know, I got my answer from USA Today. It's a non-story. In other words, what I did as an ex-reporter 
was virtually a miracle getting that story in Time Magazine. Once it hit Time Magazine, it was like an earthquake. Yeah. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, NBC, ABC, Oprah. All of a sudden, the non-story, the story of the, of the dog that bit the boy. Remember, you didn't quite understand yes, the, yes. The, the thinking there. Dog bites boy doesn't belong on the front cover of Time Magazine. All of a sudden, it belonged on the front cover of Time Magazine. Newspapers and magazines that had turned me down and broadcast outlets that had turned me down, all of a sudden I was getting hundreds of calls and that story was all over the world. And we were getting calls from headhunters all over the world. So ultimately, the girls were found in Luzerne, Switzerland. When he got the tip that that's where the girls were hiding in a home uh, his wife had purchased in, in Luzerne, he rented and he chartered an airplane from Philadelphia International Airport to Milan, to Milan, Italy, took a limo with hidden dark windows from Milan to Luzerne. It parked outside the, build, the, the home. He ducked down in the car. Two of the guys in the car, two burly guys, grabbed the girls while the mother was screaming, kicking and screaming, help, help my girls! And they were shoved and screamed and kicking into the limo and there's Bippin and the girls are still their daddy and the girls are screaming, Mommy, we want our we want our mother. And the limo went from Luzerne to Milan, back to Philadelphia, and the girls were taken back to Rosemont, Philadelphia, where they lived throughout their teenage years. What happened End to the of mom? story. Well, what happened to the mom, though? Did she ever get good, to see them again? Good story. Good question. Yeah. What happened to the mom is Bippin Shah would not allow the mom to see them without a th psychologist always present or always on the phone listening to the conversation so the mother could not say anything negative about her ex-husband. The mother never, of course, the mother did return to the States. She was living for years in New York City and then moved closer to her parents' home in uh, Pennsylvania. And the girls, today, the girls today are in their early 30s, early 30s. Pippin Shaw is around my age, and his wife is around 62. Wow. Oh, my goodness. Well, I, see, now, I want to ask you so many questions. Um, you mentioned transitioning out of 
journalism and into PR. And I want to ask you about that, but I think I want to make the listeners and the viewers buy a copy of your book to learn a little bit more about, about that and about how you came to represent two popes as a PR person and how you also um, had an experience with Mother Teresa. But um, So I think I'm going to make them buy a copy of the book to learn about your experiences with the popes. But I would love for you to talk about the moment that you had with Mother Teresa that you said really changed your life and how you transitioned back from public relations, which they should read the book to hear about how you got into public relations in the first place, but how you transitioned back from public relations to journalism. So I met Mother Teresa in 1975, one year before the Eucharistic Congress was to come, in, come to Philadelphia. And my role was to handle worldwide publicity for the Eucharistic Congress. And Mother Teresa stepped into the room up on the fourth floor of the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And she apparently had been told that I was of the Jewish faith. And I was stunned when she said to me, we of the Catholic tradition are so grateful to you, our brothers and sisters of the Jewish faith, because had it not been for you, Catholicism would would never have existed. It was as if an elephant had just left the room. No one had ever said that to me before, so I was really taken by that. But in this discussion that we had, which lasted something less than an hour, she looked at me and said, you know, Ed, you don't have to be a nun to have a purpose in life. And she looked me in the eyes and she said, do you have a purpose? Do you have a purpose? And, and I paused and I said, well, I did have a purpose, but I lost it. And I told her that I had been and have been frustrated and unhappy having left the fourth estate, journalism, and that I really wanted to get back into journalism, but the doors were really closed for me because once you leave journalism and you go into what is called its cousin, public relations, editors don't trust you. They don't believe you. They simply, because you're considered a spin doctor, uh, I, I can't get hired. I've knocked on many, many doors and I simply can't find any opportunities as a journalist. And her response to me is, I will pray for you. I will pray for you. And what is incredible, within two years, I was working at a place where the doors had been closed, a place that was called the Philadelphia Bulletin. Wow, I love that. Thank you so much, Ed, for telling that story. And thank you for 
being here again. Um, I wanted to ask, I ask all of my guests this because this is a podcast called the Transformational Storyteller Podcast. And as you know, because you had kids, right, whenever you read a fairy tale or a children's story to them, um, there's always like a takeaway or a lesson, hopefully, that, that people can learn from, from stories. And I just wonder, you know, if someone were reviewing the book of your life, what would be the one, you know, takeaway or nugget that you would want them to have? There is a takeaway story, and the takeaway story is this, that everybody deserves, no matter what, a second chance. And that story comes from my involvement with the Philadelphia Mafia. And uh, I had been asked... Which, yes, which I want people to read the book for that story as well. So, But everybody deserves a second chance, I think, is a really great lesson. Yeah, yeah. And then people will have to read to find out more about the Pope and to find out more about the Mafia, because we don't want to give it all away. Right? Okay, okay. All but right. how do people get in touch with you? Because I know you speak and you, you know, and, and if they have any questions about the book or hiring you for a speaking event or anything, how do people contact you for that? A couple of ways. Uh, my website, which is www.ededeisen, all strung together, Ed Eisen, E I S E N, show, S H O W, Ed Eisen show.com. So the website uh, will allow you to uh, allow organizations to book me, to order the, the book, Front Row Seat. And um, my phone number is also on there, but the easiest way to get in touch is to email me. Okay, yes, great, which is all on the website. So www.edeisen.com. And thank you again so much. My I, pleasure. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Transformational Storyteller Podcast. As always, thanks to our episode sponsors, our production team at Rebel Hill Consulting, and of course, many thanks to you, the listener. Whoever you are, wherever you are, I hope you're creating stories that empower you and inspire others.